We're in uh, Romans. If you're new among us today, we're uh, we're working our way just uh, passage by passage through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, uh, which he introduces in chapter one as the gospel of God concerning His Son. And today we're in chapter twelve, verses nine through sixteen. Would you stand with me and uh, let's read this together? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is God's word. You may be seated. Four uh, quick observations are in order as we move into this uh, section of Scripture. First of all, just be reminded that that uh, Paul is talking about the outcomes, the the uh, the effects of um, offering our bodies, as he talks about in chapter one, as living sacrifices, um, and in chapter two, uh, choosing not to be conformed to this world, but allowing God to transform us by the renewing of our minds. So everything he's talking about here uh, is appropriate to a mind that is being renewed by the Spirit, a life that is surrendered to God. Secondly, uh, a lot of people have noticed that Paul's sequence of thought in Romans 12 kind of resembles the progression of his thought in his first letter to the church in Corinth, chapters 12 and 13. Uh, For example, in verses 4 to 8 of Romans 12, which we saw last week, uh, Paul introduces the uh, the metaphor, the idea, the concept of the church as the body of Christ, as he also does in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27, in a little longer form. In verses 6 to 8 of Romans 12, Paul highlights the diversity of ministries within the body of Christ, represented by spiritual gifts and God's unique functioning, God's unique working by his spirit through each individual, as he also does in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 to 30. And from there he moves to, um, in Romans 12, 9 through 21, which we are beginning to look at today, to the essential, all-encompassing requirement of love, just as he does so eloquently in one of the best-known chapters in the entire New Testament, if not the whole Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, which is usually referred to as the love chapter. So it's a very similar progression of thought. Give uh, Paul some high marks for consistency. Here's here's a, a third observation. So far in Romans, uh, all of the references to love, I think, unless I miss something, have been to God's love for us, uh, which was demonstrated on the cross through God the Son, Jesus Christ poured out into our hearts by God the Holy Spirit, and from which we will never be separated because of the love of God the Father. But now, Paul focuses on love as the essential dimension of the horizontal relationship between believers, the essential dimension of Christian discipleship. 
Fourth, the manner or the style in which Paul wrote to the Romans in verses 9 to 21 just seems kind of suddenly out of character for Paul. Uh, Instead of his usual flowing, logically ordered uh, exhortations, teachings, explanations, uh, argumentations, the sentences are suddenly much shorter. Um, nearly all of them contain a distinct command. Within, uh, with each verse, the subject seems to change, even in some cases with each sentence. The commands are given rapidly, one right after another, and appear to be, in many senses, disconnected from each other. They're, they seem to be just a random flow of, of commands. Uh, so that you really have no way of predicting what will come next. Uh, The style that Paul employs here, nevertheless, is one that was widely uh, used, widely popular in the first century among both Christians and pagans alike. And its intent was to capture the intention of a reader or an audience by just kind of changing the pace all of a sudden. And um, it was uh, loosely structured, as we see here. Uh, It was usually employed for the purpose of calling people to, to adopt a certain set of moral attitudes and behaviors. It was kind of a sudden rapid-fire staccato in your face, deal with this in your life. And in spite of this sense of disconnectedness, if you stand, if you, if you get close enough and long enough to see what it is that Paul's addressing, and then you back off, and you begin to get a sense of uh, the overarching theme of this section, which is stated, I think, in verse 9. I think it's kind of an introductory statement where Paul calls us as Christians within the community of faith to a love that is genuine, a love that is without hypocrisy. And given that love is the theme, uh, we should note as well that in the Greek language there are four words for love, uh, three of which appear uh, in the verses we just read. And, And I share it with you not just for the sake of information, but because we will come to it as we begin to work through these commands. And the first uh, uh, word for love, the most popular and most frequent uh, word for love in the New Testament, is agape, A-G-A-P-E. By the way, uh, a lot of the extra information I usually put on here didn't get put on here. I I sent the PowerPoint to Evan last night and said, i got to go. So I was going to add it in last night, uh, didn't do that. Uh, So I'm going to try to help you fill in the blanks. Uh, Agape, uh, A-G-A-P-E, it's a kind of love that's motivated by uh, personal choice. It's a love that's governed by one's will. It's the kind of love most often associated with the love of God. It's often referred to as an unconditional love because as God exercises agape, as God exercises his love toward us, uh, his love transcends all of our Sin. It transcends all of our failure. Uh, his love is a gracious love, a merciful love, a love that looks beyond our fault uh, to our need. The second word here is, uh, the second word for love in the New Testament is eros, E-R-O-S. It's the word from which we get our word erotic, and it's always, always used of the love between a man and a woman. The third Greek word that's often translated love is philos, P-H-I-L-O-S, philos. Now, philos is a brotherly kind of love, or the kind of love, if you will, that grows between close friends. It, it never has an erotic 
or sexual connotation, though many in our time have tried to make it that way. It, it, it never is used in that way in the Bible. The name of the city of Philadelphia uh, has this word as its root, uh, and it's, you've heard, it ref, heard of Philadelphia referred to as the city of brotherly love, and that's because that's what that word literally means. The fourth word that's translated love is storge, S-T-O-R-G-E. Uh, This is the most uncommon word for love in the entire New Testament. It only shows up a few times, but it shows up in the passage we're considering today. It's the kind of natural love that's expected between um, family members. Uh, The love of, uh, the natural love that's expected of a mother for her children or a father for his, his children of uh, of love of children for parents, love of siblings for each other. Uh, it's the kind of love that, that when it's absent, we're kind of shocked because it's the kind of love we assume should be present and active within uh, a family. In our world today, love can be a vague idea that's all wrapped up in feelings, uh, can't it? I mean, we, we hardly are able to think of love without somehow thinking of feelings of love. But feelings come and feelings go. Um, you know, after every wedding, there's a marriage. <laughs> Do you notice that? And, and feelings come and go, don't they, in our marriages? And feelings come and go in our friendships. Feelings come and go in dating relationships. They, they just rise and fall. I think that's why, uh, you know, it explains the, the lyrics of the song that, that say, I keep falling in and out of love with you. Uh, because feelings come and feelings go. Um, I heard this definition of love from someone many years ago. He said, love is a feeling you feel. When you feel you're about to feel a feeling you've never felt before. <laughs> no wonder that Paul wants to attach some really practical directives then uh, to bring love from the world of feelings to the world of, listen now, to the world of uh, determined intention. So in verse 9, first of all, he wants us to know from the outset that genuine love, the word here is agape, is without hypocrisy. Let love, he writes in verse verse 9 of chapter 12, let love be genuine. That's the way the English Standard Version has translated this. But the word there is uh, anupocritas, without hypocrisy. In the ancient world, the The Hippocrates was the play actor. He was the man behind the mask. He was a a stage actor. But the the church isn't a stage, and love is not theater performed to impress onlookers. Uh, If it is, it's not love. Paul says that that love is anupocritas. There's nothing phony, nothing feigned uh, about genuine love. He's calling us to a a real-time, real-world, real-people, real-needs kind of love. And there's a danger, isn't there, that in certain cases what looks like love is actually something quite different. Uh, Most of us who have dated have experienced that at some point or another. Uh, Some of us find it out too late in a marriage. But we also find it in friendships and, and across Uh, the spectrum of relationship. The reformer John Calvin, commenting on this verse, said, it is difficult to express how ingenious almost all humans are in counterfeiting a love which they do not really possess. I remember 
once uh, someone once saying that in the church behind every smile is a set of teeth. How easy it is to be polite, to be helpful, to be warm on the outside while really actually despising people on the inside. We, we can succumb to a kind of culture of niceness within the church, phoniness, uh, a kind of veneer of courtesy that covers over a spirit of slander and gossip and prejudice. Love must never be a mask. Love must never be a disguise for ulterior motives uh, within the family of God. True love is free from all pretense and hypocrisy. It's real uh, from beginning to end. In the latter part of verse 8, Paul wants us then to embrace the truth that genuine love is pure. Genuine love is pure. Uh, Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. In, In issuing this command, Paul's implying... That, that genuine love is also discerning. It's not just feeling. It's not just sentimentality. And because it's so passionately committed to the well-being of the one who is loved, it hates every evil that would come their way. It hates every evil that would get in the way of them becoming fully who God created them to be. It hates every evil that comes between them and doing all that God created them to do. When you love someone, you hate evil that would come against them or come against you, come against the relationship. So I think Paul's saying that our love has got to be conformed to the will of God for our own lives, certainly, but also equally and fully for the lives of those whom we profess to love. Interestingly enough, the verb in the the second half of the command, hold fast to what is good, means literally to be glued to it. Be glued to what is good. Uh, It's a word that both Jesus and the Apostle Paul used to describe the cleaving or the bonding that takes place in a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. To cling to what is good is to be married to it then, in a sense. Total commitment to love uh, leaves neither time nor inclination to court evil, to court sin. By the way, uh, the word good isn't a subjective word at all, which means that you and I don't get to define what it means. It's not the good that we think. It's not the good that we desire. It's good as God defines it. It's that which is inherently or intrinsically good because God declares it to be good. In Romans 12.10, the first part of Romans 12.10, then he says genuine love is devoted. Genuine love is devoted. Love one another with brotherly affection. And here's where we get into some of those words for love that we just talked about. And a literal translation of this uh, phrase is in brotherly love to one another devoted. In brotherly love to one another devoted. And in this command here, Paul brings together two, I th- what I think are, are really interesting compound words. I'm kind of a word geek, but bear with me for a minute. The first one is Philadelphia, which we talked about earlier. I just like the city. 
and it combines the word philos, which has to do with a, the love between friends, with the, the word adelphia, which refers to brothers or, or close friends. So it's, it's, the, it's brotherly love, brotherly friendship. And the second compound word is, I think, even more interesting because it's so rare. It's, it's philo storgoi. So back to philos, uh, love between friends, and then storgoi, which is a form of storge, which I gave you earlier, the natural love in a family. So it's combining friendship love with family love. And it seems to me that, that Paul is uh, calling the church as a spiritual family to exhibit the kind of tenderness, the kind of faithfulness toward one another that characterizes a healthy, loving family. He goes on in the latter part of verse 10 and says, Genuine love is honoring. It's honoring. Outdo one another, he wrote, in showing honor. Now, I'm not sure what to do with the expression outdo one another as if it's some kind of competition. Uh, It's not actually present in the Greek text, but let's talk first about what honor is. To honor someone is, is to assign them high value, isn't it? And then to relate to them according to that high value. To honor someone is to say, you are a person of high value to me. I hold you in high regard. I hold you in the highest esteem. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. He urged them, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Philippians 2.3. But what about that idea of outdoing one another in, in expressing honor, demonstrating honor? As I mentioned, the that phrase, outdo one another, is not present in the actual text. The word that does appear um, is uh, proegeomai. And uh, you don't, I'm not going to spell that for you because it's long. It, it means to lead the way. That's what it means. So that's what, that's what I think Paul is saying here. And that's where the idea of outdoing one another. He says, lead the way. Be the one that's out front on this thing. Be the one who shows people what it means to honor others. Demonstrate it for others to see and others to follow. Show them what it actually looks like, what it actually sounds like. Fifth, Paul wants us to know that genuine love is enthusiastic. My word, not Paul's. But it fits. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Verse 12. And again, there's an interesting play on words here. Anybody seen Zootopia? Come on, you can admit it. Zootopia. If you haven't seen Zootopia, you, you're like a curmudgeon or something. You've got you to see it. But if you have, you know what slothful looks like, right? It looks like the DMV. That's, that's what it looks like in the movie because it's a, a sloth that's behind the desk at the DMV, an appropriate job for someone who moves very, very, very slowly. And here Paul says, don't be slothful. 
Don't be slothful. Don't hesitate. Don't delay. Don't drag your feet. Don't be slow. And then he says, don't, and then he adds, in zeal. Which is weird because it literally means to move quickly. (laughs) So Paul's saying, don't be slow to move fast. Don't be slow to move fast. And then he adds the phrase, be fervent in spirit. How many of you are good in English? Anybody good in English classes? You can admit it. Come on, raise it high. Be proud. All right. So who knows what an onomatopoeia is? Anybody? Katie Myrick, school teacher, librarian, extraordinary. A word that imitates a sound. So that's exactly what, what Paul is employing here. It's a word that sounds like what it means. The, the, and the word translated fervent here in the Greek is zeo. It's an onomatopoeia and it means hot. It doesn't mean just hot. It means boiling. It means bubbling. It means boiling over. Be boiling over in your spirit. Do that in your life, which contributes to the fervency of your spirit, of of your spiritual growth. Be all about it. Keep stoking the fire, as it were. So Paul says, don't be slow to be fast. Don't, Don't be slow to be swift. Be boiling hot in your spirit. Why? So that you can serve the Lord. That's the progression of thought here. Be, be ready, keep your spirit hot so that you can serve the Lord with passion and intensity. See, each of us has a responsibility in that regard. This is a command here. This is not a suggestion. It's a command with apostolic authority. Keep the fire stoked in your spiritual life. It's your responsibility no one else's. He goes on in verse 12 and says, genuine love is hopeful. It's hopeful. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. The hope that we have in Christ is not a hope that's mere wishful thinking. It's not Singing, someday my prince will come, maybe, hopefully, I don't know, I really hope so. It's not what it's saying. Uh, Christian hope is, is confident expectation based on the promise of God. That's what biblical hope is. And the focus of that hope, the ultimate focus of that hope, is our confident expectation of our eternal salvation. That, in fact, someday our prince will come on his time, on his schedule, someday, and he won't be late and he won't be early, but he's going to come for us and take us home. One of the great enemies, I believe, of love, agape love, philos love, even erotic love, is despair. Is despair. When we've lost hope, uh, when we've lost sight of God's faithfulness, when we've lost sight of God's promises, when we've gotten our eyes off of what God's word says and life is hitting us full force, uh, when we've lost our feelings of love in our marriages or in our families, 
and things aren't good, we can be despairing. And, and I really do believe that that despair is the enemy of love. It's because we have this hope in Christ that we're able to rejoice in spite of anything that happens, in spite of all the circumstances of life, because we hope in Christ, we're able to rejoice, and out of that rejoicing flows love. And because we have this hope in Christ, we can be patient then in tribulation. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Expect it. Don't, don't think it's some unusual experience. Life in, in, in just in the world, let alone in following Christ, will we'll hit you in the face a lot of times. We live uh, this side of heaven. Because we have this hope in Christ, then we persist in prayer because we know there's someone listening. And we know there's someone answering, someone who's coming again to take us out of here. In verse 13, Paul reminds us that genuine love is generous. Generous. And he has a particular kind of generosity in mind with, a, a, with particular people who are to be the recipients. He writes, contribute to the needs of the saints. That doesn't mean buy New Orleans football gear. That's, that's not what he's saying here. The saints are God's holy ones. Contribute, it's a, again, it's a command, contribute to the needs of the saints. Paul was consistent in his, this emphasis in all of his dealings with all of the churches. Now, I don't have time to cite um, a lot of those, but it's probably expressed best, maybe summarized best in his letter to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia. Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, he writes, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So be generous to everyone because that's the character of Christ being developed in you is to be generous to everyone, to be a giver. But remember that there's a priority on the needs of fellow believers and the needs of the church. You and I are to love each other by establishing a priority in our lives of giving generously of our resources, our money, our time, our gifts, our talents, to meet the needs of God's people. In verse 13, latter part of verse 13, he goes on, he says, Genuine love is hospitable. It's hospitable. Seek to show hospitality. Simple little command, simple little phrase. The New Testament word hospitality, as you may know, literally means the love of strangers. Philoxenia, the love of strangers. Hospitality was a high value in the early church, and that was because, uh, in a way that's similar to today, but not exactly like it, it was a mobile society. People were traveling, and they would travel on foot, or they traveled by horse. They moved slowly. And, and so, uh, when they were passing through a town, um, the inns, if there were any, it was not usual to find a Motel 6 anywhere in Israel. But um, if there were any, they weren't places you really wanted to go. They were usually kind of nasty places. So the expectation was, not only in the church, but in the society at large, that you had a room that was available for a stranger who may be passing through. And, and you extended hospitality to that person. 
Um, so the writer of the Hebrews says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. <laughs> How about that, huh? We had an angel in our bathroom today. Paul or Peter wrote, show hospitality in First Peter four nine. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Don't, don't don't act like it's some big imposition. Choose, choose it. You may be wondering why I chose a picture of a guy running without a shirt on or shoes to represent this command. And it's not because of the lack of shirt or shoes. It's because. Paul wasn't urging the Romans merely to practice hospitality. He wasn't urging them to simply meet cultural norms. The word is more literally translated, pursue, run after it. One of the early church fathers, a man named Origen, was commenting on this verse when he wrote, we are not just to receive the stranger when he comes to us, but actually to inquire after and look carefully for strangers to pursue them and search them out everywhere, lest perchance somewhere they may sit in the streets or lie without a roof over their heads. Conjuring any images for you right now? He goes on in verse 14, he says, Genuine love is kind. Kind. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. If you've been to a funeral or a memorial service, there's usually something called a eulogy. And that's the word that Paul uses here for blessing. It it literally means, in literal translation, to speak well of someone. So to bless someone is to speak well of them, to, to confer a blessing by kind words and gestures. Jesus taught his disciples the same principle when he said, But I say to you, love your enemies... And pray for those who persecute you. And we say, well, Jesus, couldn't you have thought of a better command here? Really? Love our enemies? Pray for them? Yeah, because he repeated it in Luke 6, 28. He said, bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. And some of those people are in our families, aren't they? They're... They can be in the church for sure. And when they curse us, we want to curse them back, don't we? You know, our old sin nature says, curse them, and that's the nice form of it. God says to us, you bless them, and you ask me to bless them. That's the proper response. I didn't say it. I'm just the messenger. But here's what I know, that at the center of our faith is a man dying on a cross, a Roman cross, nails through his wrists and his feet, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Father, bless them as they're cursing me. Jesus had cursing going on from at least one side of him, we know. There was cursing coming up from the ground at him, those down there. 
I imagine in that moment, because I don't know fully what the Son of God experienced on the cross, but that there was cursing coming from the spiritual realm at the same time at him like arrows. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. A Christ follower named Stephen picked up on that. He was stoned to death for his faith in Christ. You can read it in Acts 7, verses 59 to 60, that as they were stoning Stephen, as, as rocks were hitting him on, with the intent of killing him, which took place, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and falling to his knees, rocks still coming. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep or he died. He died. Paul goes on in 15, genuine love is empathetic. It's empathetic. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. To, be, to, to have empathy is to feel into a person's situation so that it becomes your own. So that you feel what they feel. Not mere sympathy, not just standing back and, and having pity or sad feelings, but actually entering into the experience of the one who is going through difficulty or, or, or through celebration. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. The Christian experience is, is not one person against the world but one great family living out together the mandate to care for one another. That's what we're about here. And God's will for us is that as his children, we become a family where the, the joys of one become the joys of all. The pain of one is gladly shared by all. The older brother in Jesus' parable, the prodigal son in Luke 15, provides an example of the failure to join in rejoicing when his brother, his kid brother, the rebellious one, the troublemaker, the black sheep, comes home. And his father puts on a huge celebration puts his robe on him, puts his ring on his, on his son's finger, put, puts shoes on his feet. And the older brother couldn't enter into the joy because he didn't love his brother. And in fact, he resented his return, his claim upon his father's estate, his claim upon his father's affections, freely, freely given. Jesus may be a good example of rejoicing with those who rejoice in his presence at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, where he turned the water into wine, which the master of the feast said, this is, what's, what's the deal? Why didn't you bring out this wine earlier? You saved the best for last. So you never, in the pages of the New Testament, get the impression of Jesus as a curmudgeon. He didn't walk around with a yellow halo on his head and bumping into people with it. That's not what he was. He was a real person, and people enjoyed him. He got invited to the best parties. But at the same time, he's definitely 
one who knew how to weep with those who weep. And maybe the best example is his response to Mary at the tomb of her brother and his friend Lazarus. When Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then there's that two-word verse, shortest verse in the Bible. That's all we ever think about. It's just the shortest verse in the Bible. Isn't that funny? Just two words. But the two words are, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. And the word weep here is not just the, the weeping of the lump in the throat and the, 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 the tearing up of the eyes. It's what's being described here is loud wailing. It means to, 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 to weep loudly and visibly and, and audibly so that everybody knows you're weeping. There was no possible confusion about how Jesus felt in that moment because he was weeping openly without holding back, without any duplicity. Something we each need to take into consideration in our relationships is what it means to enter into that place in our relationships of being able to freely, without holding back, without any duplicity, rejoice with those who are rejoicing without any envy of their good fortune, but rather celebrating it fully with them. And we need to think about what's required of us relationally to enter into that place where we are able to sincerely weep with those who weep because we feel what they feel, because we are so present with them, so invested in them that when they hurt, we hurt. I pray that we would be that kind of church. And then Paul says, genuine love is single-minded. Live in harmony with one another. That word harmony literally means to mind the same thing toward one another. That's, that's a literal translation. Mind, minding the same thing toward one another. It means to be of one mind. Paul wrote to the Philippians, chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And the single-mindedness that Paul's urging us toward, I think, is less the result of accommodation to everyone's particular point of view and more the result of arriving at a mutual understanding of God's particular point of view and mutually embracing the revealed will of God for us. Robert Mounts observed that... uh, like spokes in a wheel that converge at the hub, the closer we are to God, the closer we become to one another. And finally, Paul writes that genuine love is humble. It's humble. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. It's pride, isn't it, more than anything else that disrupts and and, and distorts and destroys the harmony that God desires among us in the church as his kids. And I love uh, Leon Morris observed that the, the person who's wise in his own eyes is rarely so in the eyes of other people. 
right? I like the way that J.B. Phillips paraphrased this. He said, don't become snobbish. Don't become snobbish, but take a real interest in ordinary people. John Stott wrote that uh, few kinds of pride are worse than snobbery. Snobs are obsessed with the question of status, with the stratification of society into upper and lower classes, or its division into distinctions of tribe and caste, and so with the company they keep. They forget that Jesus fraternized freely and naturally with social rejects and calls his followers to do the same with equal freedom and naturalness. What a very comprehensive, very practical, very pragmatic picture of Christian love Paul gives us here in these verses. Love is to be sincere, pure, devoted, honoring, enthusiastic, hopeful, generous, hospitable, kind, empathetic, single-minded, humble. I, I don't stand here claiming to be examples of any of this. We're all in this together. Each of us individually has to deal with these commands. But they are commands. I hope that uh, maybe you'll spend some time thinking about this short little passage this week. Maybe print it out and put it somewhere where you see it regularly. Because uh, I just want to close with a simple question that, that I hope we can reflect on, and, and that is that what kind of church would we be if each of us gave, our, gave ourselves to obeying them? That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. It begins with me and it begins with you. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for uh, this passage. It challenges the socks off of us. It hits us uh, in the areas of our selfishness, uh, of our lethargy, uh, of our pride, of our um, greed. So many issues here, Lord, that you want to confront in our lives. And I pray that, uh, Lord, uh, that I uh, might become conformed to what your will is here as expressed by Paul. And, uh, Lord, that we as a church would as well, that uh, if, if we were this kind of church, uh, Lord, we, we would be uh, surely being, knowing that we're being transformed and, and, and as a result transforming uh, the community around us. So help us to that end, Holy Spirit. Continue your work in us to make us like Jesus. Amen.